Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of Relationship Radio. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing itstartswithattraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to itstartswithattraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. We started asking the question when we were children. The question is, why? If you remember when you were very small, or if you've been around children who are very small, you know that shortly after they learn how to talk, they want to know why this, why that. And when you give an answer, they ask another question, well, why that? And it sometimes drives us crazy, yet we continue to do it throughout our lives. We want to know why. Not just what is happening, but why is it happening? And if we can find a good, valid reason, it makes us feel better about it. Or if we can't find one, often we fabricate one. Like, I bet this is what's happening, or I bet that's what's happening. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Beam. Welcome to Marriage Radio. We've been asked a lot of questions about this thing referred to most often as midlife crisis. As a matter of fact, if you go online, you can find all kinds of things about midlife crisis and its various stages. Some people will say there are six stages, others say five, etc. We don't find it in the DSM, that's the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, that counselors and psychiatrists use for mental diagnosis. So it's not an official mental disorder or an official emotional disorder. Actually, the term midlife crisis kind of sums up some things that people are going through, and people have kind of clamped onto it and say, that must be what's happening here. We're not against people using that if they want to use that phraseology, but actually, it's inaccurate in many ways. So let's talk about it and the things that people associate with it and see if we can figure out why a person who believes he or she is in midlife crisis or a person that you believe is in midlife crisis is doing the things that he or she does. Our special guest on this program is Kimberly Holmes. Kimberly has a master's degree in psychology. She is also the executive director and chief executive officer of Marriage Helper, the nonprofit that that is responsible for this program and others. Kimberly, when you hear the word midlife crisis, what do you think? You know, Joe, when I hear that word, first of all, my, my, my counseling background comes out of me and it screams, Oh, that's not real. That's not something that we can we can use to actually help someone through. There's just so many different things that people attribute to the phrase midlife crisis. And then the personal side of me, when I hear that phrase, I think I feel like I've probably already gone through a midlife crisis and I'm not yet in midlife. <laughs> You're not even 30 yet. <laughs> so uh. So there's there's all these different things happening, but really, and then when when I when the CEO side of me comes out, when I look at our audience of people that we work with on a daily basis, the question that I think of is these people are looking for something and they're not getting a good answer to it. So what is it that they're searching for? What is it that they're trying to define? And how can we actually help them define it and use that definition to actually help them save their marriage or strengthen their marriage. Right. And there are people out there, though, Kimberly, who say that that's exactly what they're doing by giving them information about midlife crisis. Mm -hmm. So when we look at it, we're saying, okay, if you want to use that phrase, fine. But you really need to understand, if you want to understand why, don't jump at the first 
thing that makes sense to you. For example, I have several physician friends, and I think at least every one of them at some time has told me when he or she was first in med school that first year that whatever disease they were studying, they thought, oh my goodness, I have that. Because when you look at things, there are so many things that cross over, even in the medical science, that you know, it may be the fluid, maybe pneumonia, it may be this, it may be that. And and they would read the descriptions, descriptions of these diseases and think, oh, I've got it. I've got it. And so one thing they learn in med school is, okay, be a little bit more discerning. Don't just think that that's what it is because certain symptoms fit. And so we're saying, okay, if you really want to understand this, understand that what people are referring to as midlife crisis is very similar to 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 having a difficulty transitioning through different times of life. Okay. And if they want to call it midlife crisis, okay, although we think that's not quite accurate. So right. if you're trying to transition from one part of your life into the next, and so by that understanding of it, it also happens with adolescence, right? Absolutely. So I, I messaged, had a, a brief conversation with my one of the professors that I had when I was going through my marriage and family Masters of Marriage and Family Therapy degree. And I was asking him his thoughts of this because I know that we had discussed it back when I was in school, but I just wanted to make sure nothing had changed, that I wasn't holding a belief that was no longer valid. And in our conversation, one of the things he said was, uh, there's there's this psychological model called Erickson's model. And this researcher and psychologist named Eric Erickson basically took a child's life cycle from when they're born to when they turn 18 years old. And he broke it down into six different developmental stages. And in each of these developmental stages, there's these different questions that children have during this time. There's these different life cycle milestones that they go through. But one of the biggest ones and one of the ones that they have the most difficult transition in is when they're going from adolescence into adulthood, into emerging adulthood. And in that, the biggest question that these children are trying to answer is, who am I and what is my purpose? So this actually, this concept of searching for who you are and what you're put on earth to be here to do starts way before midlife or even quarter life. It starts usually around the age anywhere from 13 to 17 years old. And that's where it starts to take its most of its flourishing of it. Okay, so when that happens, and we're going to get to the adults in just a moment, but let me just, first of all, Eric Erickson? Is that what his parents named him, really? I think that's right. <laughs> what an imagination. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we're looking at a teenager then, and we're going to move to adults in just a moment. Looking at a teenager, what kind of things would you see in a teenager who's going through that transition? Oh my goodness. I'm living right now with a teenager who's going through this transition. And so in one day, you know, she is really into one thing, into one group of friends, into a, a place that she believes that she feels accepted. And then the next day, it could be something completely different. She's literally going from being obsessed with one band or one makeup color or one <laughs> one thing and then moving to the next because she's trying to figure out where she fits in, where she belongs, who's going to accept her, what her future might be. And so there's a lot of decision changes. Okay. And so that can lead to a person behaving differently. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's move into the adult thing then. 
And so we have a person that's going through some kind of a transition, and it doesn't have to be at 30, 40, 50, 60. It can even happen at 70 and older. I mean, what we're talking about here is not so much midlife, right. where that phrase came from, I guess, is because people tended to see it in people they thought were in the range of midlife. But it was really over a lifetime that when you finally come to realize that what you're doing is not satisfying to you, or situations are changing in a way that you feel like you can't control. Like, for example, let's say that, uh, you know, the occupation you're in just ceases to exist because technology now brought something else into existence. And so you spend all of your life learning how to do this one thing, and then it appears, although it didn't take place overnight, it appears overnight that now whole new technologies replace that. Either I have to learn a whole new skill set mm-hmm. or everything I've lived my life for doesn't make sense anymore. Mm-hmm. I remember one of my minister friends when he finally left pastoring a local church saying, I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. I don't know what I'm here for and what's supposed to happen. And so when you start into a transition, whatever that transition might be, or a realization that you're not fulfilled in the way things are now. Like, I've done this for so long, and I finally got to the point where it's like, what I thought was going to happen hasn't. What I expected things to be aren't. So either frustration with where you are, or frustration with what am I supposed to do next, is kind of the trigger of what we generally are referred to as midlife crisis. Am I correct or incorrect with that? That's definitely correct. And I do believe that there might be an argument for the time in people's life when it happens. It can happen at any age, but perhaps people see it a lot during the ages of 40 to 50 because that is when someone's typically been at a job for a long period of time when they have been hoping to make a certain amount of accomplishments in their life. Maybe they wanted to continue progressing in that job. Maybe they wanted to have already saved X amount of money or put such amount into a Roth IRA. There's all of these goals in life that they wanted to get to by that time in their life. And then when they get there, if they haven't met those goals, it can make them feel like they've failed in some way. It can make them, and because of that failure, people might start questioning, well, have I been doing things right? Have I, should I have done things different? Should I go do things different going forward in the future? So, you know, as we said, people can have it in at any time during their life, but it's definitely something that uh, that many people go through, but not everyone has to go through it. And I think that the problem when a spouse diagnoses, quote unquote, their spouse with midlife crisis because they might fit a certain age group or because some of their, quote unquote, symptoms fit what they've been reading online is that they can start treating their spouse like Mm. they're going through a midlife crisis. Mm -hmm. And we all know, especially from a psychological background, when you start treating someone a certain way, they're going to start acting that way. Self-fulfilling prophecy is what it's called. Right. And so you've got to be very careful that you don't make a diagnosis of your spouse about anything when it comes to mental health, emotional health, etc., unless you are a qualified professional. And even then, your diagnosis is suspect because you're too close to the subject. Mm -hmm. That's why physicians don't operate on their own family. (laughs) When you're too close to the subject, you are more likely to make mistakes. We see things, for example, online all the time about, oh, my spouse is a narcissist. What makes you think that? Well, because of the fact that I read online, these are what a narcissist does or thinks or feels, and that's exactly him. Therefore, he's a narcissist, and they start actually thinking and treating the person as if he or she is a narcissist. And we try to respond to people all the time by saying, 
statistically speaking, there are not that many narcissists, true narcissists out there. Can there be people who are prideful? Yeah. Can there be people who are arrogant? Yeah. But a true narcissist? And even worse than that is when they say, my counselor says my husband's a narcissist. Really, how many sessions did your counselor have with your husband? Well, my counselor hasn't met my husband. But based on what I say, my counselor says my husband is a narcissist. If that counselor is actually a licensed professional, he or she should lose their license. How in the world can you diagnose somebody you haven't met? And if I were talking to a counselor who told me my wife was a narcissist or that my wife is having midlife crisis or that my wife has this mental disorder or that emotional disorder and had never met my wife and is basing it totally off what I say, I would run. I would never have another session with that counselor or therapist at all because it's the person saying things that he or she has no right to say. All right, so back to this then, Kimberly. It can happen at 24. It can happen at 44. It can happen at 64. Mm-hmm. I remember my father shortly before he retired, had had been in a blue-collar job all of his life and thought he was going to get promoted and was hoping for that promotion just before his retirement. And instead, it went to another person who was basically his rival. And I remember the tailspin my father went into. You know, he was 64 years old. And he went into this tailspin. I guess people would call that a midlife crisis, but it wasn't midlife for him. He was only going to live about 20 more years, so it wasn't midlife. But it was what I expected in life to occur didn't, and I react this way to it. So how then, as we're talking about it in this light, can we help people who either are going through what they think of as midlife crisis or are married to or love someone they think is going through midlife crisis? Going back to what we said a few minutes ago, when... A spouse is going through something like that. One of the things we want to do, as we talked about earlier in the program, is we want to figure out what is it they're going through. Let's put a label on it. And even as counselors are taught in a clinical setting, there's such a fine line between labeling someone and diagnosing them and being able to help them through a situation that they're going through. Because what happens when we label someone as For example, if someone has depression and we say, oh, they are depressed, what can happen is we start seeing them in a different light and we move, if if you could see my hands, I'm kind of doing, I'm moving one upwards and one downwards in front of me because we start seeing ourselves as elevated and them as lower, not in the sense that we think we're better than them, but in the sense of they are sick, I need to help them, or they are not as well as I am. And so when, and we may not consciously realize we are doing that, but for example, if my husband is going through a quote unquote midlife crisis, or for us, it might be more of like a tri-life crisis, (laughs) whatever it would be (laughs) around there, but I could easily step back and say, okay, he is going crazy. You know, he is having to experience all of this. And I, and when I start labeling him like that, I start treating him differently. It's, you need to stop doing this. You need to stop doing that. You need to be acting different. You need to handle this differently. And I'm trying to be his physician and trying to fix him. But in reality, there's not anything wrong with him. He's going through something difficult, but really what he needs is someone equal to him, beside him, to empathize with him, to talk with him, to help him think about some things, not someone who's going to chastise him because he's not doing what I want him to do, acting like I want him to act, or this, that, or the other. 
I think another issue that comes to light during this time is there's some people who are listening to that and they think, okay, that's great, but my spouse is gone. Like they're in an affair. They're not in a situation where I can be their helpmate and come beside them and and be that friend to them right now. So what am I supposed to do? And in that situation, I think what what we search for, what we're looking for with the answers of trying to figure out what's going on with our spouse is we're trying to, again, attribute what they're going through to being their problem, their situation. And we take our ability to work on us and see what we can contribute helpfully to the situation. And we take that part out of it. We just say they're sick, they're broken, they're going through this. So I'm just going to stand here and do nothing until they get better. But that's not the right way to respond. I was on a national radio talk show uh, with a host that is actually, I think, extremely highly of. And one of the callers called in and basically said, my husband lost his job and now all he does is lie on the sofa and he acts like he's totally depressed, etc. And the person whose talk show it was, I mean, I was just a guest, said, I'm, I'm not quoting him exactly, but here was the gist of his message. Tell him to get his butt off that sofa and go find a job. Tell him to get out there and do what he needs to do. Now, I didn't want to disagree with the host because, first of all, I like him a lot. <laughs> and secondly, you know, I knew that that's what he truly believed. But I said, well, let me give you a different idea about this. What if you start talking to him and get him to the point where he can start explaining what it is that he feels. Does he feel like a failure? Or does he feel like that he has been mistreated by, by his company? Does he feel that he's been mistreated by society in general? If you're going to have any kind of way to deal with this guy, it's not going to be by telling him, get up and get off your butt and get a job. And it's also not going to be, oh, you poor thing, you're so sick, and you just cover him up on the couch and leave him there to rot. Neither of those. What you do, and this is what Kimberly started us into, is that you take whatever opportunity you have to listen, to try to understand. One thing I learned when I used to work with corporate America back in the days when I had money, (laughs) when I worked with corporate America is sometimes I'd go in and they'd be facing a situation and I would be a consultant. And I discovered that if I just ask enough questions, they almost always came up with their own solution. Mm-hmm. And the value I was adding was getting them to broaden the way they were thinking, to explore different ideas, and that's what I did by questioning. And in a sense, and it's only in a sense, but in a sense, that's what a good counselor does. Mm-hmm. Let me get you to talking. Let me tell you what I just heard you say. Is that what you mean? Et cetera, et cetera. And so if you have access to the person, and, I, and you just mentioned sometimes you don't, but if you have access to the person, if he or she's still at home, for example, or at least still in conversations with you, then it becomes a thing of, I, I just want to understand. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to kick your butt. What I'm here for is just to try to understand. Try to help me understand what you're feeling. And if that's too direct a question and they withdraw and don't answer, then you go back to a lot broader questions, like how are you feeling today? You know, And then as they start talking to you, you start back into getting closer and closer to the questions to help them think through things. And sometimes it will be that when they say something out loud, they hear it differently than what they've been feeling inside. And remember, if you do that, don't react. Don't try to straighten them out. Don't teach them. For example, it's very common with men that what men say out loud at the beginning often is not the position they wind up with later. A lot of men think out loud. 
And so if you react to the first thing that he says, <laughs> then you might wind up arguing about that. You lose all hope. Instead, you keep listening. You keep understanding. And it may be that in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes later, that he's in a totally different place saying, you know, I need to think this through. You know, I didn't think about it like that before. And so whatever you want to label it, try not to let yourself label it in a sense that makes you, as Kimberly said, feel superior in any way. You're there for the other person to listen to him. Kimberly, anything you want to say about that before we go into, well, what if they've moved away or what if they're having an affair? Yeah, we've we've talked a lot about asking those questions and it's so vital. But another one of the things I just want to make sure we make explicitly clear is some of the things we talked about earlier, how we might have the the reaction of get up off the couch, go do this, go do that. If that's if a person is starting into if if it's my husband, for example, and if he's starting into this into this time of his life where he's questioning things, he's questioning why he's here, what he's going to be doing, all of those kinds of things, and I start making demands of him or telling him he's wrong, et cetera, et cetera, what happens then is I push him further away. And when he's feeling these things and when he's having these thoughts, he's not going to come to me because I haven't made it a safe place. I've made him feel like he's crazy or like he's less than me or like I'm better than him. And so that's not that's not a conversation that he's going to come talk to me about. And I think that, that what that's kind of what's happening a lot when these people get to the point where they start searching Google for midlife crisis. What are these signs? What are these symptoms? Because you know, we had good intentions. We wanted to help our spouse through it, but we didn't exactly go through it the right ways. And so now it's kind of a full-fledged separation between two spouses where there's no communication, especially about the big issues. And so we're looking to fix fix what it is, figure out what it is and fix what it is. But really, if we boil it down to the very foundation of it, it's all about being a safe place, knowing how to empathize, and knowing how to communicate well with your spouse. Yeah. And as you said earlier, Kimberly, sometimes people actually do crazy things. <laughs> They're not crazy, but they can do some crazy things. I remember a man who uh, I talked to several years ago now who was a, a leader in his church, for example. And he was leaving his wife for a woman that he had dated in high school. Now, he's dealing with a change in his life, and I don't remember what the change was exactly now, but really what we're talking about is coping with the changes of life, and he didn't cope with it well, and so what he did was he made a very bad decision and tried to resurrect his past all the way back to high school. He actually said to me, God's given me a second chance to be with a woman he wanted me to be with to begin with. And I knew that he wasn't thinking clearly, so I didn't jump all over him and chew him out. I just went into asking him questions, helping him think, etc. Eventually, he and his wife, about a year later, wound up in our workshop, and he came up to me and said, how in the world could you talk to me when I was not making any sense at all? He said, I, I don't know how I wound up rationalizing it that way, but I did, and now I know that it's very definitely wrong. And so people who try to fix their okay, I have a transition in life that's not making sense to me. Either I, I'm not where I thought I was going to be, or uh, a, a life change is occurring that I don't want to occur, like losing a job or losing a promotion or something like that. I mean, there could be all kinds of triggers for it. 
But basically what they're doing now, as Kimberly said, we've been emphasizing over and over again, as they're trying to find themselves in a sense of what gives me meaning and value in my life. And so might they make some very bad decisions like, hmm, it's buying a brand new Lamborghini. (laughs) Yeah, they may do that. Or it may be, wow, I I saw on Facebook my old girlfriend from high school. Yeah, they may do that. Or, wow, this this, uh, guy who works with me is paying attention to me a lot more than my husband, and I want to be with him. And so, yeah, they can make some very, very bad decisions. But it's because they're trying to find themselves. Therefore, rather than seeing them as sick or disordered, what you want to do, and we're saying this as many different ways as we possibly can, is somehow to open up honest communication with the person and do a lot of listening and gently asking the right questions. Now, again, as we've said, that works if the person's still home, or at least it can work if the person is still at home. But what if he's left her for some 20-year-old stripper? Yeah, and that and that's usually a huge part of why people are starting to to search for these midlife crisis type searches is because their spouse is reacting in such a different way from the type of person that they married that they are really confused what's going on. And a lot of times there is an affair involved and maybe they're younger, you know, maybe they're the same age, but what it boils down to is that a midlife crisis (laughs) is not a core problem. That, that we're trying to deal with. What what people are trying to label when they're searching for this and what they're finding is just a set of symptoms or a set of signs. But knowing these symptoms and these signs does absolutely no good unless you know what the core issue is beneath it and how to move forward from that. And how do you figure that out? That's a great question. I w- <laughs> Isn't it similar? When we look online and look at how people describe midlife crisis, they basically are just reiterating the grief process. They are. Some of them add a little bit of a stage into it. Uh, Some of them just do the grief process. But yeah, so if you think about your specific situation, I'm thinking of just a few that I've seen online. And it's these, mostly it's women. And at this, you know, this isn't being stereotypical, but from what we see as the track of people who actually do these searches on Google, we find that 67% of the people who search midlife crisis are searching on how a midlife crisis affects a man. So most of the time it's either women looking to figure out what's going on with their husbands or it's other men trying to figure out what's going on with their friends, or it might be a man trying to figure out what's going on with himself. So um, that's just, I guess, a fun tidbit of information. But <laughs> So if you, if you view it as being basically a grief process, uh-huh. then if you're going to find the core issue, you've got to find out what the person is grieving. Exactly. So you have to go back to... What might have been the preceding event that happened that launched into this? What is it that that has happened? And it may be that you know it, that you can know it without even asking your spouse. You might know that your spouse took a pay cut at work or that your spouse lost his mom or his dad or that there was something that happened in the life of your spouse that set this off without even having a conversation. But it could be that you aren't quite sure what it might be. And also... It is good to note that just because something happens in the life of your spouse that you would not consider personally a life-changing event doesn't mean that your spouse doesn't view it that way for himself or herself. And so remember, step one here is start looking for events or actions, things that occurred 
that were either just before or not long before your spouse began to act differently. It may, you know, he might look back and say, oh, well, his dad died two months before this started. Hmm, that could be a trigger. Or it could be, oh, you know, he lost the pay raise. Or, oh, he lost his job. Or, oh, his best friend in high school, and they kept in contact with each other over the years, and the best friend called him a month or two before this thing started happening to tell him that he had just made this tremendous thing in his workplace and had gotten this massive promotion and was given a huge bonus and was buying a brand new house and it was going to be massive. And now here this guy is, the guy you're married to, going, I can't afford a massive house. I mean, he and I were buds. Why is it that he succeeded and I haven't? Why has, have things gone well with him? And, and look at me, I'm just trudging along. And like Kimberly said, you may have heard him say, my buddy just got a big bonus and is building a big house and you didn't pay any attention to it. But that could be the trigger for this. Remember, it's a sense of loss. When you grieve, it's because you lose something that is important to you. It can be losing a person, obviously, but it also can be losing a dream. Like I finally have to admit that that dream is not going to fulfill, that my life is not going to be what I expected. It could be it could be grieving because of the fact that you feel that you have been treated badly by either people or a corporation or just life itself or sometimes that God treated you badly in your perception. It's always losing something that you felt was important. That is what starts the grief process. And so if you're trying to figure out a, quote, midlife crisis, end quote, the first thing you want to look at is precipitating factors. Since when people online, when they explain midlife crisis, basically, basically just give the grief process, then worrying it, not stop worrying about midlife crisis and start looking at the grief process. What possibly is my spouse grieving over? Now, if you can't figure it out, that's when you gently start asking questions. But understand this, if you ask your, direct, your questions too directly too soon, you won't get an answer. For example, if I just discovered one of my friends had made a million dollars and built a mansion, and here I am working for a nonprofit and making not that much money at all, I might mention to Dallas, my buddy got a big raise and built a big house. She said, great. Now, if later she starts thinking, maybe that's the deal then. Maybe that's what precipitated this behavior. And she says, did it really bother you that your husband, I mean, that your friend got the million dollars? I might blow it off. Oh, no, I'm happy for him when that's not what I'm feeling at all. And so if you ask the question too directly, too quickly, you might not get an honest answer. What you want to do is just kind of work things into it. Maybe you're sitting on the front porch at springtime. If you, if you still have access to talk to them, and we're going to talk more about it if you don't, if you still have access to talk to them, and that's when you have the conversation of, you know, I'm just kind of thinking about life, and can I just talk to you about what I feel? And you start off talking about life, not him, not her, but you and life. And gently coax out of the other person that. But you understand that sometimes they don't want to tell you what they're grieving about because they're ashamed of it. It's like I'm ashamed of the fact that I didn't make the million dollars that my buddy did. And so they're not going to tell you that until they feel totally and completely safe that you're not going to look down on them. They're not going to ridicule them. You're not going to think they're crazy. You're not going to say, oh, buck it up and get over it, big boy. None of those things, right? That's absolutely right. Absolutely. And the other thing that I just kept hearing you say when, when you were talking about is pride is a huge part of this. Mm -hmm. And it's not just men that have pride. It's women who have pride. You know, I, I said that I feel like I've gone through a quarter life crisis uh, because there's 
when sometimes when my husband and I, when we talk about our goals for the future, our hopes for the future, it can be hard for me even to admit some things that I want for my future or want for my life because part of me is like, if I don't, if I don't make those goals, it's going to be a real kick in the gut for me to have admitted it and to have wanted it and then to not get it because I can be a prideful person even though I don't think of myself as a prideful person. Absolutely. All right, so let's move to this next thing then. Mm-hmm. All right, he's run off with a 20-year-old stripper. I'm, I'm saying that because I'm actually remembering the guy who did that. He <laughs> ran off with a 20-year-old stripper. And when he was talking to me, it was when he'd been with her about a month. He actually left his wife and moved in with this woman and had met her at a strip club one night, okay? Uh, and as he's talking to me, he was going like, what have I done? I've ruined my whole life. I've destroyed this and everything else. Now, I only met him for the first time when he came to talk to me about that. So I didn't know him before, et cetera, et cetera. Now, a 20-year-old stripper, whatever, your spouse has left you and is living a, a totally different lifestyle, trying something totally new. Maybe they're out partying and drinking all the time. Maybe they're with another person, uh, all kinds of things. Now, we know that we explain to people how to make it safe when you have opportunity to speak to them. We actually have a course online. It's called Save My Marriage. It's a 10-week video course, and it also has coaching calls that go with it. And in that program, we talk about how to be a safe place when this occurs and how to be a safe place when that occurs. By the way, if you're interested in that, go to Marriage Helper. That's Marriage Help, E-R, MarriageHelper.com slash Save My Marriage, all one word, Save My Marriage. So Marriage Help, E-R, MarriageHelper.com slash Save My Marriage, all small letters. And it'll tell you about that. Now, one of the things we get in the coaching calls regularly when people are taking that online course, and and by the way, they always thank us for it because it does so many things for them. Mm -hmm. But one of the questions they ask us is, okay, so you're telling us how to be a safe place, but what if I don't have opportunity? What if I don't have the ability to communicate with my spouse because he or she has basically cut all communication out? How do I do that? There's a lot of different things we talk about with that. We've, we've done webinars on this. We've spent hours talking about this. But basically, what the first thing you want to look for is, is there anything that you still have a common ground on with your spouse that could lead to a conversation? So if you have kids together and you have to talk about the kids, that's that's one way. If you have shared finances, maybe a house, if there's business type things that you have that that leads to a conversation that you have to have at some point, then that is basically your foot in the door. So you start trying to talk to your spouse by not talking about your marriage, not talking about the emotional things, but by saying, hey, you know, little Timmy had a really great day at school today. Um, he took, he created this picture. Would you mind if I took a picture of it and, and sent it over to you? And you start by talking about those things you have in common. And you don't launch into anything about the marriage. You don't talk about anything about the emotional things or how bad things are, how you want your spouse to change. You don't talk about any of that stuff. You start by rebuilding the basis of friendship. And while you're talking about these quote unquote business matters, the kids, the mortgage, finances, whatever it might be, that's when you also have an opportunity to say, hey, just wondering how your day was today. And then you just let your spouse respond however they might. At first, it probably will be, oh, it was fine. Very short. They're probably not going to respond. But with that, you just respond back and say, awesome. Well, 
thank you know, thank you for telling me. If if you ever need anyone to talk to, I'm here for you. And you don't push it, but you let them know that door is open. You let them know it's there, and you just keep asking those questions as it as time permits. Right, without pressing, mm-hmm. without pressing. And what you Kimberly has phrased it exactly right. It's you're trying to rebuild a friendship. Now, and so if they give you an opening, like, well, I really had a terrible day. Oh, I'm so sorry. What happened? And that's it. You don't go pushing further than that. And you certainly don't say, well, you know, if you lived here with me, I could help you through days like that. You don't do that. <laughs> because if you do, you push the person away from you rather than drawing them towards you. Right. What you When you wait for an opening, it's not like a prize fighter waiting for the other person to drop the guard so you can punch them. Don't think of it like that at all. It's, it's like waiting for an opening where you see a little piece of their heart, a little piece of their emotions, a little piece of their mind, and you respond in a positive way that lets them know, oh, you understand how I feel. Huh. Thank you. That's what you're searching for, that right there. Now, is it always a possible, uh, possibility for this to occur? And the answer is no. There are people who will so cut off all contact with you that you won't even get a chance to do this. And maybe you don't have kids together. Maybe you don't have business together. You say, okay, how do I do it then? Well, what you do is you become a person who is safe to anybody you know. What I mean by that is you become a person who knows how to listen, how to be warm, how to be caring, how to be kind. You say, why? Well, first of all, that benefits you. It actually makes your life better in many, in many, many ways, including bringing really good opportunities to you. But there's also another possibility here. Now, notice I didn't say probability, possibility. And that possibility is that some of these people are going to be mutual acquaintances with your spouse that no longer has access to you or no longer allows you access to him or her. And they'll be saying things over time like, wow, you know, she's she's actually become the warmest, most kind, intelligent, wisest person I know. And and when that happens, the word starts getting back to your spouse that you're different. Now, is that immediately going to cause a change? No. But it's still planting the right seeds where you're being perceived as a safe place. Now, remember, that will not necessarily happen, but it doesn't have any possibility of happening if you don't do it. Therefore, do it. Become a warm, gentle, kind, understanding person. It benefits you. You're going to turn out not liking you if you become bitter and angry and mad at life and mad at, at God, mad at everything else. So do it for you, and it creates the possibility of opening those lines of communication with your spouse at some point. Absolutely. So basically, the first thing that we said to do is to look for that preceding event that happened just before the change of behavior. In the sense of what is the loss That led to this. It's always going to be some kind of a loss, either tangible or emotional. It's going to be some kind of a loss. And so you're looking for that to say, what is the loss that started this grief process? You see, Kimberly and I believe you're much better off not to think of it as a midlife crisis, Mm -hmm. but to think of it as a grief process Mm -hmm. because now your focus will change. That's exactly right. So when you're and when your focus changes, you empathize differently, you you see your spouse differently. You know, that's something that we hear a lot of actually when a spouse is going is when someone has a spouse who's in an affair and when they start hearing us talk about limerence and how it changes the brain and the things that happen with it, it is not uncommon for the spouse who's hurt by the affair, the standing spouse to say, "I really feel for my spouse. I empathize with what they're going through." That's so powerful 
to be able to put yourself in your spouse's shoes to understand what they're going through from their point of view, not just from your point of view, and to have compassion on them. It's huge. So that's the first thing you want to do. Look for that preceding event that that came from a sense of loss. And the second thing is open up the gates to allow your spouse to talk while they feel safe, while they feel like they're not they're not being pressured to, they're not being forced to, but they're actually able to just talk as much or as little as they want to talk. And the third thing is understanding the grief process and how your spouse might move through it. So let's talk about that for just a minute. There's actually five stages of the grief process. And this is, I actually don't know for sure if this is something that has been researched and studies have been done on it. Yes. Um, I know it's... Kubler-Ross was the lady who, who worked with people who were dying. And she was the first one to delineate it because she saw gotcha. what people went through. It is pretty well still the one that is accepted. A thing to understand about the reprocess, though, is this. It is three steps forward, two steps back. Mm-hmm. What I mean is it's not linear like, okay, I'm finished with step one, I'm going to step two. Okay, I'm finished with step two, I'm going to step three. You might actually be in the third part of it and all of a sudden go back to number one mm-hmm. or back to number two. So understand it is it is not absolutely linear. It has its back and forth, but it generally goes through these five phases. And the first stage is denial. That is where someone says, no, it doesn't. You know, earlier when you said, if if Alice came back to you and said, does it upset you that your friend made a million dollars and is buying this great house? And your answer would be, no, it no, doesn't. happy for him. Happy for him. Pure denial. <laughs> exactly. Pure <laughs> denial. And someone may not realize that that's what they're doing, but it could be unconscious or subconscious or, or whatever. I believe it would be subconscious. Remember the grief process as established by Kubler-Ross had to do with people who were physically dying. And when they were given the information from a physician, denial is often the first reaction, like, no, no, I do some more tests. You can't be right. This couldn't really apply to me. But what Kimberly's saying and saying it well is understand that the grief process applies to anything that's important to you. And when you first start thinking about the fact that you've lost it or are losing it, quite often what you'll go through is denial. You know, everything's okay. Everything's wonderful. You understand in denial, you're not dealing with reality, which is part of what kind of leads you out sometimes in doing those la-la land things. Mm -hmm. The second stage is anger. That's where you begin to realize it comes to surface. You're not denying it anymore. And you just get angry that this is what happened or this is what is happening. And interestingly, that anger gets directed in every direction. What I mean is that. You can be angry at you. Why didn't I take care of my body like I should have if it's a physical malady? Why didn't I finish my degree if it's, you know, something happening at work? Or why didn't I go ahead and do this? Or why didn't I do that? You can get angry at you. You can actually get angry with your spouse, even if your spouse had nothing to do with it, because of the fact that she or he seems to be so obtuse about it. When you complain about it or talk about it, and spouse is like, oh, get over it, grow up, or anything like that. Or they get onto you, or even they say, yeah, you're right. You know, if you'd have done this back in the day, this wouldn't have happened. Any of those things, and you get angry about the spouse. Or if they keep prying with questions that, and you're not ready to answer. 
The anger can also go toward your parents. It can go toward your friends. It can even go toward God. It can go toward your church if you're religious, that kind of thing. It's like you become angry, 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 and a lot of things you do, you do out of anger. And that's when we see things, Kimberly, such as uh, I'm having an affair, but it's not because I'm really involved with the other person. It's because I'm just mad at the world, and mm-hmm. so I'm going to go do whatever I want to do. That's when you also see people do things like heavy drinking. Things Acting like that. out. Acting out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Basically, they feel like they've lost control of their lives, and they're trying to get control back, but it's not in a way that's healthy. Exactly, because they're they're in the grief process. They're not dealing with reality and logic. They're dealing with emotions that can be overwhelming. Right. The third stage is depression. So they move from the anger into depression. Again, that sense of loss, that sense of uncertainty about the future, and it's now changed into being depressed. Now, depression can be diagnosed clinically. There's a screening tool online that you might want to go look at. It's a screening tool, not a diagnostic tool. I understand the difference. A screening tool says, hmm, it's likely this is occurring, or it's unlikely this is occurring. If it says it's likely it's occurring, then you go see the right professional. The professional who is trained and certified has to make the diagnosis, not you. But if you think, for example, that you may be depressed, or if you think that your spouse may be depressed, the thing is called the PHQ-9. That's Public Health Questionnaire 9. It's all over the Internet. You can find it many places. If you can't find it there, then if you email us at info at marriagehelper.com, that's info at marriagehelper.com, we'll send you a copy of the PHQ-9, and it's a screening tool for depression. Now, understand, it's a lot more accurate if you do it on you and you're honest, but you can kind of use it to get an idea as to whether you think your spouse is depressed or not. Now, if there is severe clinical, severe and or clinical depression, that's when you really want to get to a somebody who can prescribe the right medicine or give you the right therapy to help you deal with that. Now, if your spouse tests out and it says, well, it's very likely my spouse is depressed, you don't beat them up like, you're depressed, go to the doctor. It can be like, boy, I know you're feeling miserable. I understand that the physicians, for example, can give you things to help you feel better. Uh, why don't we go see Dr. Charles? You know, whatever, that kind of thing. But depression, when a person's in depression, they're not logical and they can do some really dumb things, but now you're dealing with a real mental, I'm mean, sorry, emotional disorder, I should say, called depression. So try the PHQ-9 to get an idea, but understand only professionals can help you deal with this, or sometimes with time, people can get past it, but it's a whole lot better if you can somehow gently convince them to go to a pro. The fourth stage is withdrawal, and this could be where a lot of people's spouses are who are not engaging in the marriage. They've withdrawn from marriage, just like in the anger stage. A lot of times people get angry at those they feel closest to or those who are safest to them. Then in withdrawal, you can withdraw from the people who are closest to you, who are safest because, and the reason behind that is because we, if there's a sense of security, you know, me and my husband, I feel like even if I'm angry at him, even if I withdraw from him, Eventually, I could turn back and he'll he'll be there. So he's the safest target. It's not necessarily logical, no, but it's what people do. It's real. Mm-hmm. It's real. You can even see that with kids. If a kid's trying to get your attention and can't get your attention at all, they'll go to all kinds of extremes to get it. 
And then finally, they'll just withdraw from you. They'll just pull back emotionally from you. Now, I know it's not the same thing as what we're talking about here, but you can see it in a, a kid. I, I just want to withdraw. I want to be by myself. It's almost like they're having a pity party. <laughs> and the reason you don't invite anybody to your pity party is because they might cheer you up. Mm-hmm. Right. This is this is a process. This grief process is here for a reason because even though it's difficult for someone to go through all of the stages, in some ways it helps them cope. Yes. That's why they're going through it. So trying to rush someone through it or trying to chastise someone for being in it isn't going to help them get through the process. That's right. This is the time for total understanding and to very much be that safe place. Mm -hmm. And then finally, that fifth stage is acceptance, where the person finally accepts the loss that has happened in their lives and learns how to move on with life in light of that loss. Acceptance is pretty well a key to most things in life. When you finally accept, this is what's happened. I can't change it. Like, for example, I I can't change the fact that I'm getting older. I mean, that's just going to happen. Or, okay, I got fired from my job because they've come with new technology that eliminated me. I can't change that. Now, in in AA, for example, they say the serenity prayer, and you've probably heard parts of it where it's like, you know, the courage to change the things I can, the ability to accept the things I cannot change, and the wisdom to know the difference. Acceptance is the key to so many things in life. It's when you can finally say, "I'm, I'm not fighting against the impossible anymore. I'm not trying to make things different when they can't be made different. I'm going to accept that this is where I am. This is what's happening to me. And so... Like I gave the illustration earlier of my father being so upset when his, basically his rival, got the promotion that my father wanted. Eh, When he finally accepted the fact, okay, that's just the way it is, which, by the way, was after he retired, which was just not more than a couple of years after all that happened, he retired. And when he finally accepted it, he was at peace again. So accept the fact that I've lost my job. Accept the fact that my buddy made a million dollars and bought a new house. Accept the fact, all those things, accept the fact that I'm not as talented as, as this other person or I haven't been blessed as much as this other person. Okay, rather than being mad about it, I accept it. That's when you start finding peace within and everything gets better. And if you're the spouse of someone who's going through this process, then the best thing that you can do is to be that safe place for your spouse, to not try and push them through the grief process or to try and push them to do things differently or to act differently. But what you're really looking to do is to be the kind of person that your spouse will want to come and talk to about all of these things. Because just knowing the signs and symptoms of what your spouse may be going through really doesn't do any good. What you really have to know is how to respond in light of what your spouse is going through. And a lot of people we work with, they say, well, if I wait it out, or why do I have to do this when my spouse is doing all the stupid stuff? And it really has to come from within you. We can tell you all day long, Mm -hmm. do it for you, do it for you, do it because it's the, if anything works, this will. But you have to come to terms with the fact and the belief and the faith, the, the strong belief that If anything works, not only for yourself, but also for your marriage, it's you doing the things you need to do, no matter what your spouse is doing, so that you will be the kind of person that your spouse will want to come back to. So as we begin to wrap this up, I started off the program by saying kids ask why. 
And we go all the way into adulthood, always wanting to know why this, why that, why the other. It's what drives creativity. It's what drives exploration. It's what drives scientists to do what they do. The, re- the desire to know why is very human and very strong. So if my spouse is going through what I have thought to be a midlife crisis, why? It's because they have a strong sense of loss about something that was important to them. Their ideas about the future, the job, money, all kinds of different things that can be. So the why is they lost something that's important to them and they're going through the grief process. So rather than thinking in terms of midlife crisis, think in terms of how can I gently help my spouse go through the grief process? That's how you deal with it. Absolutely. And it starts with you doing the things that you need to do. You working on yourself, you becoming a calmer person, becoming a more peaceful person, and allowing for those conversations to happen in all the ways that we've that we've mentioned before. Don't push your spouse. Don't try and force your spouse. Don't try to parent your spouse. Hmm. But you're looking to come alongside of your spouse and help them walk through this time of their life. We work with many of these marriages who have experienced loss, gone through the grief process, and the marriage has been negatively affected by it at our 911 workshop. And if your marriage has been affected by anything like this, or maybe there is an affair, or maybe there's something else going on where you are not in the kind of marriage you want to be, perhaps it's headed for divorce, or there's other issues that you just can't get past, we would love to have you at the Marriage Helper 911 workshop. We have them twice a month here in Nashville, Tennessee. And if you register before December 31st of 2016, then you still get this year's pricing. For more information on that, you can call us at 615-472-1161. Or if you're calling internationally, you can call 866-903-0990. You can also get more information at your.marriagehelper.com slash marriage-workshop. Your.marriagehelper.com slash marriage-workshop will include all of those in the description of the podcast, so you can easily click on those and find us. We are real people, and we are really here to serve you and your real marriage needs. We appreciate you being with us in this podcast. We hope to see you on our podcast in the future. On Tuesdays, generally, beginning at 9 p.m. Central. Thank you. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you, Joe.